where the miracle of pregnancy meets the reality of your changing body, where taking care of our kids meets taking care of ourselves, and where the daily frustrations of feeding a family meet establishing lifelong healthy habits. This is The Messy Intersection. Welcome back to The Messy Intersection. My name is Diana, and I am your host. Just a little reminder about me. I'm a mom, of course. I have two little girls, ages three and five, and I'm a registered dietitian. I am very thankful to be able to do exactly what I love, which is to counsel families really on any issue that may impact the family's relationship with food. So sometimes I'm working with the parents of an infant who isn't meeting his or her growth trajectory. Sometimes I'm working with the family on a child's selective eating. And sometimes I'm working with a mom on her own history and issues with food, both to help the mom make peace with food in her body, and also, of course, because her positive relationship with food will benefit her kids. And a lot of times I feel like I have too many balls in the air, which is pretty common in motherhood, whether or not you're running a private practice. But for me, all of these different kinds of issues come back to helping families enjoy a positive relationship with food, which is really my bottom line. So if you're interested in learning more about the work I do, I'd love for you to check out my website, which is dianakrace.com. And of course, there will be a link to that in today's show notes. And today we're exploring an issue that is so very related to a family's relationship with food, which is emotional eating. Emotional eating, what comes to mind for you when I say that? Are you thinking about your own experiences with emotional eating? Today, my guest Rabia and I are going to talk about emotional eating, but I bet we're not going to talk about exactly what you think. Rabia will be sharing her story of loss and how that morphed into a period of emotional eating for her. So just a content warning that this episode does include a discussion of infant loss. We'll also be touching on the concept of emotional eating if you haven't experienced loss. Maybe you're just pretty stressed out about still being in quarantine and food has become one of your coping mechanisms. We'll talk about all that stuff. As always, this interview is for informational purposes only and not a substitute for professional medical advice. And the views I express are my personal opinions and do not represent the views of my clients or employers. So my guest today is Rabia Bauer. Rabia is currently a program coordinator for a future education model graduate program to teach and guide the next generation of registered dietitians. Her program has a social justice emphasis, an area Rabia is passionate about. She also volunteers with Diversified Dietetics and is a mentor and featured speaker for the Women's Leadership Initiative at Penn State. Her past experience includes working for WIC, the Food Trust, and as a retail dietitian for The Giant Company. She loves sharing authentic family recipes from her Gujarati and East African heritage and spends hours on the phone with her mother and Nani to get the recipes just right. Let's hear from Rabia. Hey, Rabia. Welcome to the Messy Intersection. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. So Rabia has a, a really you know unique, heartfelt story that I'm sure she'll get to sharing with us. But Rabia, why don't you just start telling us a little bit about yourself? So like you, Diana, I'm a dietitian. As you know, we did our dietetic internship together. I'm also a mom. My oldest daughter is seven and in second grade. And we're going to talk today, you know, about my second daughter, Soraya, who was born in 2016. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about your work as a dietitian. Currently, I'm a retail dietitian for a major um, grocery store here on the East Coast, but I just accepted a new position as a coordinator for an upcoming dietetic internship. And I start that internship position on Monday. Oh my gosh, congratulations. I did, This is a total surprise to me. And that's yes. amazing. And you're going to be so fantastic at it. That's I'm awesome. looking forward to it. Thanks. 
So tell me a little bit about becoming a mom. We were chatting beforehand and you were saying, you know, your journey has been both very typical and very atypical. So just, you know, wherever you want to start. How did you become a mom, Rabia? Yeah. So I, you know, the point of that is really my first daughter was our surprise, which, you know, the last statistic I saw is that 50% of babies are surprise babies. We're very particular about calling her a surprise and not a mistake. We are so grateful for our daughter. And I think, you know, a lot of moms maybe can relate to that. They weren't expecting their bundle of joy to come right when it was expe- they were expecting that. The other half of my story is my second daughter, Soraya, is a lost story. So, you know, the most recent statistics so that one in four women has a miscarriage or some sort of infant loss. It's a little bit less for neonatal loss. But there's parts of my motherhood journey that I think a lot of women can relate to. Yeah, definitely. And so losing Soraya was not a miscarriage, correct? Do you want to tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So she she was very much planned, very much prayed for. We definitely wanted um, to expand our family. We loved our first daughter so much. We wanted another. And she was born prematurely, totally unexpected. We had no idea that's where we were headed. So she was born at 24 weeks, which is the earliest a baby is viable. You know, if you have if you go into preterm labor than that, there's earlier than that, there's not too much medical teams can do. So it was one of those things. I had an appointment. I just wasn't feeling great. It was the holidays. I was feeling run down because it was between Christmas um, and New Year's or right after New Year's. My OB-GYN said, we'll just go to the hospital and get checked out. And within a half hour of being hooked up, they were like, you are having this baby right here and right now. And and none of us, you know, we had all the stuff from our previous daughter, but we were just not ready for that news. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm sure you were so scared at 24 weeks and with with the knowledge that she could be viable, right? You know, how did you process all of that? I didn't even know at that point. Like I you know, it it wasn't that I wasn't given a choice, but they were like this is what we need to do based on all the signs we're seeing, we need you to go and have an emergency C-section. And I had really hoped for a V-back. I was you know, doing everything different this pregnancy. So that didn't even cross my mind because I didn't even know. Like, I didn't think about that. You know, the hardest thing is just being hooked up and, and you have to get all these supplements. You have to get a magnesium supplement if you deliver that early, which is it's awful for the mother because it just doesn't feel good. Like, there's really negative side effects. It's really important for the baby. So I understand why. But, you know, it was just like, it was what, what is happening? We we just didn't know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm sure any mom listening, her heart is breaking for you. Because, you know, sadly, the, the end of the story is that she, she did not live. So is anything you want to share about that experience? Just that if you've ever been a NICU parent, you know, you have so much strength. We were in the NICU for eight weeks. And Soraya was doing as well as she could be expected until she wasn't like, it, you know, she was passing all these NICU milestones with flying colors. And then all of a sudden she wasn't. So it wasn't like it wasn't a um, possibility we had hadn't prepared for. We knew that that was definitely a possibility, but we were kind of used to getting good news at our daily and weekly updates from our neonatal team. So it's tough no matter what, like being in the NICU, even if you graduate out of it is really hard. I wasn't the first family that I saw experience a loss in a NICU. So it's just you, anyone who's been there, you have so much strength. Yeah, absolutely. And so this was about five years ago now, correct? 
Tell me a little bit about just the past five years and especially immediately afterwards, you know, what was life like for you and, and how did you cope? Yeah. So I'm, I feel so grateful that I had, you know, such a supportive workplace. I had so many supportive friends. Obviously there's people who say the wrong thing and, and that's it's any type of grief. I'm so blessed that my best friend does have a psych degree and had some experience in this field. So she was such a support. But, you know, it, there was absolutely days that I was too depressed to get out of bed. I did seek therapy, which I would recommend to everybody, <laughs> you know, really an important part of my healing process, recognizing that healing is ongoing. There's no end goal there. But I know something you and I had touched on was that emotional eating was a huge part of my coping mechanisms for better or for worse. It, it, it just was. And I knew it. I knew I was doing it. So, you know, like you, I was already aware of intuitive eating and and mindful eating and not feeling guilt around food. But I truly ate to numb out my emotions because they were so strong and so hard to deal with. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point that you bring up about, you know, emotional eating gets a really bad rap. You know, we should like basically that if you're eating for emotional reasons for any reason, you shouldn't be doing that. And I just want to like shake whoever is saying that kind of thing. Like when a mother is facing loss, we're going to do whatever we need to do to get through, you know, and we'll, as we'll talk about, like, if it's your only coping mechanism, you know, if anything was your, if alcohol was your only coping mechanism, we would talk about that. Right. But in this case, you know, it is, you know, food is safe, (laughs) you know, and it was, it was something that got you through a really hard time. Is there anything you want to add on that? No, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head, right? It, it wasn't my only coping mechanism. It's something I talked to my therapist about. So, you know, my most salient example is for whatever reason, I chose, well, I, I chose really high carbohydrate foods, right? They light up the pleasure center of your brain. They taste good. Boxed mashed potatoes was my thing. And I, I don't know why I love mashed potatoes. I don't particularly love boxed mashed potatoes, but it is what it is. And I remember there was a day I ate a whole container of them, which is, you know, the serving size is like four to six or six to eight. It's meant to feed a family. And I ate the whole thing in one sitting. And I told my therapist about it. And I said, you know, I know the reason I did that is because when my stomach hurt, when I had pain in my stomach, I have a set list of things I can do to deal with that pain, right? I take a nap, I drink water, maybe I take Pepto-Bismol, I try to go to the bathroom. Like, when you have stomach pain, even with my older daughter, when she says her stomach hurts, there's all these things we try. And, and that has an answer and an endpoint. When you have emotional pain, when your heart is breaking, there is no easy solution. There's no checklist to fix that. You can't just take a nap and think it'll be better when you wake up. And I said, I know I'm doing it, but I just can't stop. And she said, that's okay. And, and that was really important to me that she said, the important part is you're recognizing you're doing it. Let's talk about other coping strategies, but I'm not going to sit here and shame you and tell you not to do that. So that was a really um, insightful moment for me in therapy. So I'm really curious. You mentioned that carbs are your food. Rabia, you are a type 1 diabetic, correct? I am. (laughs) (laughs) A whole whole mix of, you know, my health for a variety of reasons, not just eating mashed potatoes was not great. You know, my own care with my type 1 diabetes kind of, it fluctuated a ton when I first became a mother, right? My daughter was then my priority. I had two years later, I had gotten back to, you know, me being the priority in that sense. But my diabetes management and my diabetes care wasn't a priority. It was 
honestly, like just stay alive, like make it to the next day. Wow. You know, I talk, something I talk about with my clients a lot is prioritizing their self-care over what is nutritious. Or, so, you know, there's a million different ways to c- combine foods to live a you know healthy lifestyle, basically. But what do you need to do for your own self-care? And in your case, being a, a diabetic, there's a whole other layer to that. You have to do things that other people don't have to do. And I wonder if if that contributed to your frustration? I don't know if it contributed. I mean, it's something I've been dealing with now for 25 years, right? Like I've lived with diabetes longer than I haven't lived with it. And I don't really remember much of a life without it. You know, in in the potato example, at some point, my consciousness was like, well, you need to take an insulin shot. Otherwise, you're going to have a whole set of other health issues that are not going to help. But honestly, like sometimes emotionally feeling miserable and physically feeling miserable, like that's just where I wanted to be some days. I just wanted to wallow in it. And I think that's important that there's this idea of negative feelings or grief or loss that we just have to get over it, but you can't get over it without going through it. Yeah. Okay. That's a really interesting point. So many people, they, you know, they come to me in my counseling, they want to feel better. You're saying you wanted to, to sort of like go through the fire of, of feeling like crap. I, I don't know if I like consciously yeah. knew that at that yeah. point, but like, you know, when there's like a, a nasty gray day outside and you're like, this matches my mood and it just feels so fitting. I have days like that often that I'm like, oh, it's a sunny day. I feel fantastic. That I think, you know, if, if I was Picasso, that would be my gray period. Like everything was just gray and, and the color and light of life was not there as it was previously or as it is now. And I see a lot of women in the, in the support rooms I'm in talk about like before loss and after loss. And it's just such a defining moment in their lives. So yeah, it was just my gray period and, and feeling like crap physically and feeling like crap emotionally just fit for me. So sometimes with emotional eating, I, I know people use food to, to feel numb. So numb is a different feeling from crap. And, and sometimes people use it to feel uh, comfort. You know, the actual like that feeling of fullness gives you a security that you might not have in other places in your life. So was anything like that going on? Maybe a little bit. Like I, like I said, I do love mashed potatoes. There's, there's something nice about something warm and soft and delicious and buttery. Yeah. But again, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I was definitely using it as I'm going to overeat until it's painful. Oh, wow. So I wasn't looking towards food as a comfort. Mm-hmm. I think I was looking towards my bed as a comfort. Yeah. But just knowing again, like the key realization for me was I'm using food to feel with a pain that I know how to deal with. Mm -hmm. And because the flip side of that is there is also a pain that you didn't know how to deal with. Yeah. I think that's the point where I wasn't looking forward to going through it. I wasn't going through the fire. Like I was actively looking to avoid that. Yeah, absolutely. And who can blame you? I mean, it's the worst possible situation. And we're, we're all like, I know my heart's breaking for you. It has been this whole time. And I'm sure anyone listening has been. But so emotional eating also is tied up for most people in this like guilt of this is so unhealthy. This is going to make me gain so much weight. If I were stronger, I wouldn't be doing this. So what was your take on, on those three things? I think I feel really lucky that I understood intuitive eating because 
I understood intuitive eating, but you know, so much of this is still wrapped in diet culture. I think I understood that I wasn't not strong enough for eating, but I did have a lot of feelings. And a lot of people make comments about my body because my body gained a ton of weight because I was eating a lot of food, not for hunger, right? I was eating it to feel upset and feel overfull. So I um, gained a ton of weight because that's what my body does with all those excess calories. And, and that was, that was the longer issue because I ate emotionally for at least two years after she passed away. I would say probably within the first nine months to a year, I stopped eating to the point of overfulness, but I would eat because I was like, I don't feel good about the fact that I lost a daughter. I'm going to go eat a brownie and it, it fixed it in the moment, right? Brownies taste good. I enjoy a brownie, but afterwards, that brownie did nothing to help the real issue I was dealing with. Yeah, of course. And I imagine over the course of two years, you you knew and you, your therapist knew that it wasn't fixing the issue. And I don't know if we, we can't, we don't fix right. child loss. So <laughs> we cope. So over the course of the, that time, how did your coping evolve? And how did how did eating play a role in all of that? So I think my main focus was looking for coping techniques that weren't food-based. Like I was ready to move out of that coping technique. I knew I was doing it, but I also knew, to your point, it wasn't actually fixing the problem. So continuing therapy, and then I went, I took a break, and then I went right back to my therapist. So continuing that, I started journaling, and specifically gratitude journaling, which for me was a turning point. So, you know, being intentional about writing about my day, I've always been a writer, and then writing about something I'm grateful for. And, you know, some days it was, hey, I earned my free drink at Starbucks today, or some days it was, you know, I went on a walk and I saw a beautiful sunset. Like, they don't have to be these big overarching things. I think the free Starbucks drink I might have put in there a couple times because I was just looking for something that made my day a little bit better. But being intentional about that and focusing on what was good in my life was really important for me. And it's something I like to share with other women in the same position that you might not feel joy right now. And I totally understand that. But if you allow joy back into your life, it it will come back. I can't tell you when, I can't tell you how long, but it will. There is a life and a joyful life to be had even after loss. Yeah. So something that stands out to me with you saying that is that, you know, you've shared so far that you were actually eating to feel bad, but for most of us, eating food plays a role to help us feel really good, whether it's just like you feel good because you're not starving to death, or you feel great because you're sharing a meal with your friends and family, or you get to enjoy something that is just one of your favorite foods. So how did your relationship with food evolve? Did you get back to that place of finding pleasure in food? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think I eat now when I want to eat what I want to eat and however (laughs) much. I want to, I think, you know, so I'm putting up air quotes around normal, Yeah. getting back to normal. There is no normal, you know, our lives, our whole family's lives have changed. But at a certain point, I felt like I am ready to get out of bed and eat breakfast. And I am ready to get out of bed and start my day and, and do something beyond just focusing on my loss. And I think that's true for most people with loss at a certain point, whenever that is, they're ready to pick up their old habits. 
For my family, you know, as a dietitian, and because I cook better than my husband, I've always been the one who does most of the meal prep. So at a certain point, I was like, I'm ready to start planning our meals and talking to you about what you want and, and, you know, incorporating our daughter in meal prep. I think we did a lot of takeout when everything happened. Our community, you know, really rallied and did a meal train, which was so beneficial. And, and not that the food on there wasn't healthy or unhealthy. I wasn't even looking at it like that. It was just, this is a free meal that I don't have to think about and we're all going to eat it because we need to eat, right? So at some point, it just, it happened very gradually for me that we just started eating in a way that's normal for our family. So more meal prep at home, you know, planning what we're going to have week by week. And again, for me, because I wasn't eating to the point of over fullness, my body shape changed again. So I'm really interested in what you've shared so far about how you were really grounded in intuitive eating and health at every size, body acceptance before this happened. That is not the case for like 99.5% of people out there, women, women in particular. Um, but the way you shared that you were grounded in this going into the loss, I imagine, you know, you mentioned that you've connected with um, other groups of moms who've experienced loss. What has been your perception of women who may have had a similar experience, but end up on top of everything feeling guilty about the eating as well? No, that's a, that's such a good question. And it's a little bit hard to answer. So for me, you know, when you experience infant loss or miscarriage, there's this immediate loss of control, right? Like I was one of those women who wanted to be in control of my career, the food I'm eating, my life. I And I was always, you know, I was like that for a very, very long time. When you experience a loss like this, I think the most immediate sense is you don't have control over as much as maybe you think you do or you want to. And, and weight and body shape and body size is part of that. And, you know, in diet culture, you know, our culture tells women, well, you've had the baby, it's time to get your body back, right? Like, whatever nonsense that means, however unrealistic that is, they say, all right, you know, there's all these plans, six months, get your body back. I personally haven't seen that in the lost community, because I mean, I'm sure it's there. Let me let me say I'm sure it's there. But I think we're dealing with so much more that there isn't this idea of, oh my God, I have to get my body back. I think women typically, and this, and this is you know not to speak for everyone, I think there's a subset of women who said, all right, I've lost this baby. I've had a miscarriage. I'm going to try to get pregnant again as soon as possible. And that was me for a while. Like I was like, all right, I'll just have another baby. That'll fix it. It doesn't fix it. And we didn't have another baby that just wasn't in the cards for us. And then there's some women who are like, all right, I just, you know, whether this is my fourth failed attempt or it's just not in the cards for us to have another baby, they just realize like this is their new normal. And at least for me, getting my body back was never at the top of that priority list. And again, I think loss is so immense that not to say it's not on some of these women's priority lists, but maybe it's just not up there very high. You know, as a mom who has not experienced loss, that's really interesting for me to learn. And, you know, my take on it is kind of like, it just, it's putting things in perspective. It's like, (laughs) what's really more important here? Right. Um, And, and you know, it sounds like the women that you've connected with are able to have that perspective of, I know any mom in the world, you would live in in any body that somebody assigned you if you got to have your daughter, right? Right. Like like you, you live without an arm, right? You know, so like. So many women blame themselves for 
not being able to have this baby for whatever reason, right? So not to say that we're all these body positive, body loving women, like there's absolutely women who are mad at their bodies and upset with their bodies. And I get that, like there is this, for me, at least there was this sense of like my body failed the one thing it was supposed to do. Now, to your point way before, because of my type one diabetes, I've gone back and forth with, well, my body's not ideal to begin with, right? I'm just managing this condition. So it's just super complicated is really it. But at at no point was I thinking, I need to get my body back. I was literally just thinking, I need to wake up and feed my living daughter. I need to get out of bed. And, And those are just so much more important, right? Keeping your living child alive and happy and safe. She was only two and a half. Like, Mm. you know, toddlers, they can get in trouble if left to their own devices. Yeah. And, you know, even my husband, he didn't have a paternity leave. He stayed home, but he did go back to work much sooner than I did. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in my experience, counseling women who struggle with eating for any reason, you know, so much of it, we say it's about the shape of our body, but it really is about controlling something in our life when we don't have control over other things, which in your situation, of course, you you didn't, you know. So do you, did you ever feel that yourself? Did you see that in other women that it, it's almost like a coping mechanism in the same way that emotional eating can be is that sometimes restriction turns into to a way to to numb and to process feelings, anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I, not me personally, but I've seen women who have just full on gone down all the fertility treatments and tried every option. And I don't blame them, right? I don't blame them. They're trying to conceive. They want to grow their family. I've seen other women who are like, well, I'm just going to get as healthy as I can for this next baby, which sometimes includes for them exercising more than maybe they need to or controlling what they're eating. And, and it's just, yeah, trying to find that control. I've seen some women do it with other aspects of their lives, whether it's their career or their other children or other parts of their family. But the, the biggest thing is the loss of control. And I'm, I can imagine, and I can see why using food as a way to control some aspect of your life when you feel like everything's out of it out of your control. And you know what we've been talking about so far with the with emotional eating is you and I kind of want to normalize this and you know maybe not necessarily to the degree that you spend 2 years doing it with no other coping mechanisms like okay that is something we want you to get help for but if it's a particularly rough patch I mean we're we're going to talk about quarantine for for yeah. everyone and how how challenging that was for everyone it is was as if we're done. <laughs> Don't live in it. Still at home. So, you know, but, you know, it's it's almost like I kind of want to say that eating more than you need to is a lot safer than eating less than you need to. And, you know, so I don't, I don't want to be coming across like I'm normalizing or we're normalizing restriction as a coping mechanism. And I don't want to say that we're normalizing overeating, except to the point that if you notice it happening so very much, I hope you can reach out for help for other ways. The strangest part for me was after I stopped using eating as a coping mechanism and ate in a way that was, you know, normal for me and appropriate for my needs, I started losing weight because again, I wasn't eating to the point of overfulness and pain. And nobody commented on my weight gain, which I'm very grateful for that nobody commented on that. And I'm sure 
for the people who knew they were like, well, she just went through this huge loss. But as my body shifted again, I got so many comments about my weight loss. And I remember telling someone like, well, it's not intentional. And her face immediately went to this place of concern, like, oh my God, what's wrong with you? And then I had to sit down and explain like, well, actually for the past two years, you've known me, I've been overeating and now I'm eating in a way that's appropriate for me, which just happens to be less calories and less energy intake than before. So that was the hardest part that even to this day, I'm getting comments about people think they're being positive. People think they're complimenting my weight loss. And this is just what my body looks like. This is kind of normal-ish for me, whatever, again, air quotes, normal means. But so many people like, oh, you look great. You've lost weight, blah, 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 but never wanted to acknowledge why I gained weight in the first time or like the pain behind it. Like for me, it was a pain response. That's the part I'm still dealing with is that people who maybe haven't seen me in a while will say things like that. And it's, do do I want to share this whole history with you? And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Yeah, and what stands out to me is that the way you look on the outside is somehow like evidence of your progress, you know, your healing or something like that, which... Right. It just, it wasn't like, this is, this is just what my body looks like at this stage in my life. And I anticipate it will change again. Like it, you know, I don't look like I did when I was 16. I wouldn't expect to, I don't look like I did when I was 21. I wouldn't expect to, this is just what I look like right now. And and how comfortable people feel about commenting on that. Yeah. yeah. Especially in in my case, it's a very unwelcome and very unwarranted to come to comment on my weight. Yeah. And it's just sort of, I think this is a, 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 point I'm going to beat to death on the show is like, hey, let's not comment on people's bodies, yeah. <laughs> whether or not, you know, it's it's perceived as positive, or you, or you think as the commenter, it's going to be perceived as positive, because you never know, you, you know, anything that could be going on. Right. I mean, I wish someone would have said, like, you look happy today, or you look well rested. Like, that's the compliment I really want as a mom. You look well rested today. Um, But I know you did, you shared on social media recently, a comment that you did get that was unwelcome having to do with your body size. Do you want to share that? Basically, someone who I worked with and happened to be an older white male, well-meaning, I'm sure, but was very explicitly like, hey, are you pregnant? Or when are you due? But he known I had suffered a loss less than a year ago. And again, some women do get pregnant immediately afterwards and whatever, that's fine. But for me, it was so insensitive. And and what really stuck out to me was this was not the first time he had said that. This was a, a repeat offense. And I finally just answered and said, no, I'm fat. I have fat on my body. And I don't use, I don't view fat as a bad word. Like it's not an insult to me. And I said something about, you know, stop commenting on people's bodies because I was at a place where I had no Fs left to give. Like, I don't care if you're my coworker, I'm going to say it. And he responds with, oh, my daughter tells me the same thing. And like my jaw dropped. Like if, if someone close to you, your daughter, who I hope you respect, is telling you to stop doing the thing, why are you still doing the thing? Yeah, yeah. And it sucks that it's on us your comment is perfect. Nope, just fat, you know, which is a totally appropriate thing to say if, if that's, you know, correct assessment of your, you know, what you thought about your body. And it shouldn't be on us to drill this into imbeciles heads. <laughs> and I just I think I was most shocked that he's already hearing it. Yeah. But it's how do you make it? How do you make it stick? I hope that encounter made it stick for him. I don't know. So I kind of wonder if anyone's listening here who may think, yeah, you know, it sounds like, you know, she she experienced something really terrible. She processed it in her own way. 
but I rely on emotional eating and I just, you know, I'm stuck in quarantine or like, I didn't lose a baby. So like, it's okay for her, but like, I want to conquer my emotional eating. So like, what do you have to say about just more of a broadly, the role that emotional eating plays in our lives, particularly given the collective trauma of quarantining and, you know, being so concerned about our health for this past year. Yeah, I mean, so I'm not someone who's going to shame you for that or judge you for that, nor are you. I think it's important to recognize that you're doing it. So my concern when I used to counsel was if a client didn't realize they were emotionally eating, right? And then so A, to recognize that it's happening, like allow it, like give yourself permission, but then also decide whether in that moment or later on, is this how I want to cope with this emotion? And and sometimes the answer is yes, I do want to eat a piece of chocolate and, and that fixed it in that moment. But if you decide I don't want to cope with this emotion with food, what other strategies do I have? And, and I think that's really key is that A, people are shamed for a totally normal response, emotional eating, coping with food. And then B, they're not taught other ways to cope with emotions, right? There's this this whole be positive vibes, like there's no room for negative emotions. Well, there is like quarantine stinks. Like I hate it. I'm an introvert and I don't like quarantine. There's parts (laughs) that I love. Like I want people to continue to stay six feet away from me, but... I do miss going out for coffee with friends or like sitting in a restaurant leisurely. And, and, you know, I miss that and recognizing again, that there are ways to cope with your emotions that aren't just food. Yeah, basically, like it's, it can be one tool in the toolbox. And that's not necessarily, I mean, it just isn't, it isn't a bad thing. You know, what comes to mind for me was the week of the presidential election. I was not doing very well. I was very stressed out about what was going to happen. And I remember, you know, putting the kids to bed and sitting down to watch CNN with my husband and intentionally going to the pantry and getting a whole bag of potato chips. And I knew exactly what I was doing. I was going to eat this whole bag of potato chips because that's going to put a feeling of comfort in my stomach that I don't have in the rest of my body. And I think perhaps like you, I'm in a place where I'm comfortable with my relationship with food. And if you think about the week of the 2020 election was just like, I mean, I'm doing like the the mind blow thing. Like we've never experienced something like that. Like I knew that this was not going to be a long-term thing. I knew I just had to power through that one week. And this was one tool that I had for, you know, a circumstance that I'd never had to process quite like that before. But, you know, again, like if I noticed a pattern about that, I'm just, you know, giving some suggestions to anybody listening if it became a pattern. And I wouldn't blame you if it did. This is still freaking bananas in terms of what the political climate is right now. And if you're having trouble processing that and you find that you're always going to food, you know, talk to a counselor, you know, see see what else there is that can, you know, can be going on. But, you know, I find, you know, a lot of people in order to get control of their emotional eating, they want to do intermittent fasting, they want to do keto, they want to do something that is going to stop the emotional eating that is not addressing stopping or coping with the emotions. Right. Which, you know, I, like you're saying, like, we're, we're really not taught to do that. We're taught to diet. <laughs> we sure are taught to diet. We're not t- taught to have big feelings as grownups. 
Right. Well, and I, and I think some people look at emotional eating as the problem. I don't think it's a problem. I think it's a, a symptom. Like if you're looking at a disease, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not the root. It is a coping mechanism. It's a way with dealing with it. And if you don't deal with, with whatever the root problem is, you're just going to continue to come back to that. And again, in some instances, it's okay. Like I've, I totally get the potato chip, <laughs> you know, if, I hope you enjoyed them. I'm glad it worked in the moment. All three nights in a row was fantastic. <laughs> And I'm okay with that, but it's it's in the absence of other coping strategies. That's when I think it becomes a problem because food is, for most people, readily accessible. Most people can afford a bag of potato chips. So I get that people would use that as a coping mechanism sometimes, as long as there's other ways, other ways for you to stay healthy, which don't include restricting that coping food later, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And that may, that actually brings to mind for me, I mean, a lot of people are going through financial troubles right now and a bag of potato chips is $2.00. Therapy, you know, if it's not covered by your your insurance plan or if you don't have insurance, going to be a couple hundred dollars, and that's just not accessible for a lot of people. So, it's like, we're demonizing something that truly is accessible for most people, you know. And, and this, I mean, don't get me started. This will just sort of <laughs> just you know the way that you know our socioeconomic status influences our health. We could do a whole other show about that. <laughs> but so, you know, I actually, since you, you do have your daughter, Amira, she was two and a half at the time this was all going through. I know it's super important to you as it is to me to, to raise our daughters, to have healthy relationships with food. Did she notice anything that was going on? I know she was pretty young at the time. She's seven now. What does she know about your relationship with food now? I honestly don't know if she noticed anything at the time just because I was in a headspace of like survive, right? Like I will absolutely say my husband was the primary caregiver at that point. I mean, we do talk about food now, right? Like we've had instances as young as five. I don't know what we were doing. And she said she wanted a treat and she had just eaten lunch and she'd had her dessert. And I looked at her and I said, are you hungry or are you bored? And she said, well, I'm bored. And I said, well, how is eating going to fix that? Like if you're truly hungry, I will give you food. But even as young as like five or six, she was able to say, no, I'm just bored. So I said, well, let's do something else. Let's play outside together. Let's do an arts and craft. Like, let's do something. The other half of that, though, is we don't restrict her. So she's not a big breakfast either, eater. No one in our family really is. And there was one weekend she wanted an egg for breakfast. So we fried up an egg. That Saturday, Diana, she ate five eggs in a row. My husband and I fried up five eggs in a row because we just made one at a time. We didn't want to you know, waste them. But she was like, no, I'm going to eat it. And she's never eaten five eggs in a row. And then the next day, Sunday, five pieces of toast in a row. Because she was like, no, I want it. So we did five pieces of toast. And I think about, oh, my God, what if we were those parents who said, no, no, you can only have two eggs or you can only have one slice of toast. She would have literally been starving. And, and I feel because I know there are kids out there who their parents really think they're doing the best they can, but they're cutting their kid off at a certain amount of food. Like she was just going through a growth spurt. She was hungry and her body wanted five eggs that day. So, you know, we try to model respecting your hunger cues, honoring your fullness. She's seen me put away a quarter of my dinner. She's seen me put away three fourths of my dinner, just depending on how hungry I am that day. And, and she's allowed to do the same. If she says she's full, we say, okay, that doesn't mean she gets treats and sweets endlessly, <laughs> but we also don't, they're, they're not special. Like they are, but they aren't. Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, I try to do the same thing with with my girls and especially my my older one who's five. We've had the exact same conversation about how she just wants something because she's, you know, bored. I'm honestly not sure. Yeah, I talk about this all the time, but I'm still honestly not sure that she knows what the feeling of hunger is versus that's a word I can use to get <laughs> more treats. Yeah. Or more goldfish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's fine. You know, I, I really, I we could do a whole show on the, the role of emotional eating in childhood, you know, and things like, I try not to, if she gets a boo-boo, I try not to, you know, redirect her with a lollipop or, or whatever. Right. But I've, I've seen times in her where she really does just want food because she's upset. And it's tricky because I don't want to restrict her. I think the big thing is working on helping her process her feelings in other ways, or even understanding for a five-year-old or a seven-year-old, understanding that she's having big feelings, right? And that, you know, we can, mommy's here and we can cope with this and you know, check in with your tummy. Are you hungry? You know, but yeah, there's a lot there. And I think, you know, to, to raise daughters in particular, but any kids who, who are more conscious of the role that we've been talking about all along that food can play in processing emotions in a positive way. That's a challenge in and of itself, but I do I think it's also just part of raising kids who have a healthy relationship with food is, is talking about these kinds of things. And when they come up for us, you know, normalizing it. Like, you know, she does, I mean, she had already gone to bed by the time I was eating the potato chips, but if it was something like, hey, like, mommy, why are you eating only bread for dinner? It's, you know what? I had a tough day and, you know, this feels really good to my tummy. Right. And, and we know that the rule at our table is that whatever is on the table, you can eat as much of or as little of as you want. And what mommy's choosing right now is that bread and butter. Right. And we've, we've done dinners that are bread and butter and, and you know, that's okay. And I, I hope for my daughter, what it, when I used to restrict, I would inevitably end up binging on whatever it was. And I mean, it could be anything. It wasn't like a cat. If I told myself I couldn't eat carrots at some point, I would just end up binging on carrots. Cause for me, it was that mental idea of restriction. So we don't do that. You know, we're, we're very blessed when my, my daughter lacks for nothing. She'll tell you she wants a Barbie car, but like she lacks for nothing. She has all of her needs met. But there's still always, well, I want more ice cream or I want more of whatever. And we just talk about, well, you need to have a variety of different foods every day. Not that you can't have ice cream sometimes, but it's not on the table for dinner right now, or that's just not an option right now. And and if you're truly hungry, um, you'll eat what's in front of you. And and we have, you know, when I was counseling, I would use a scale zero to 10 of hunger and fullness. And it had those physical symptoms, which nobody's taught that like you're not taught a hunger pain is a symptom of hunger and some people don't even recognize them or that saliva pulling and pulling in your mouth is a feeling of hunger or like only being able to think about food that's a sign of hunger we're not explicitly taught that but we are explicitly taught to ignore all those symptoms right yeah think about the school system kids don't get to eat lunch when they're hungry they get to eat lunch when their teacher says so and when we were in school, lunch was anywhere from 11.45 to 1.15. That's a huge gap when you're six. Oh, and parents wonder, like, she, she's coming home with an empty lunchbox or, you know, th things like that. And 
Yeah, for little bodies, it's just, it's a lot. And they're already dealing with a lot. And they're dealing, honestly, they're dealing with the the coronavirus and quarantine, even though, you know, they might not be talking about it. They're, they're dealing yeah, with they witnessing us do it and their school being different. And it's hard. I mean, so we, we probably rely on screen time a little bit too much as, as our crutch. But last Monday, you know, we didn't have school. It was a kind of gray day. And I said, let's go out for cupcakes. And we did. And that was fun. And I hope that was a fun memory for her. But yeah, sometimes we're even using food as a as a filler. I mean, right. I felt we ate it appropriately. It was after lunch. We both wanted something sweet. I think that especially given that our options for recreation are so limited right now, yes. baking brownies at home or, you know, picking up a cupcake, like we could go out for carrots and dip, but <laughs> no, we're, even like, we're going out for cupcakes or ice cream, you know, in terms of something that actually is accessible for us right now. And and I love the, that she's going to have those memories. She's old enough to know you know about the pandemic and she's going to remember it 10 20 years from now and she will remember those times if she couldn't go to an amusement park well she could get a cupcake with her mom or something we're, we're baking scones this week i don't know why she wants scones but i was like all right we're baking scones i'm sure we'll have a tea party and hopefully that's a good memory for her yeah absolutely i love it well, Rabia, I really appreciate you sharing your story and your insight for anyone else who might be dealing with this. Is there anything you want to add about about the experience? Just, you know, know that you're not alone. It, it didn't really pertain to this conversation, but the support groups I joined in, especially the online ones, were so helpful. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're experiencing loss or, you know, whatever whatever you need support with, there's there's someone out there who can help you, whether it's a dietitian, a therapist, an online support group. Just know that you don't have to handle it by yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And we're all, if it's if it's related to the pandemic, we are all going through this together in different ways, right? Like we're not all experiencing the pandemic in the same way. But yeah, I love that. I love the the you know, idea that connection can really pull us out of this. And that's that's what the design of this this podcast and the corresponding Facebook group is all about. So um Totally agree. Totally on the same page with you. So, well, thank you so much, Rabia, for being here and for sharing your story. And um, congratulations on your new job. I'm really excited to hear more about that. Thank you. And thank you for having me, Diana. (laughs) All right. Take care. That was an emotional episode, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen to it. Rabia shared how beneficial her experience of joining online support groups has been for her. And with that in mind, I'd love to invite you to join the Messy Intersection podcast community on Facebook. This is a place where you can share your thoughts on the episode, suggest future topics, and just generally mingle with a group of like-minded moms who are in the messy intersection right along with you. The link to that is in the show notes, or just search Messy Intersection Podcast Community on Facebook to check it out. Thanks again for listening, and until next week, embrace the mess. Mm